Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of New Books Network. I am your host, Lee Pierce, Assistant Professor of Rhetoric, and I'm very excited today to welcome Mina Salami, Sensuous Knowledge, a Black Feminist Approach for Everyone, which was recently published by Harper Collins. And of course, if you're not um, familiar with Mina, she is the creator of the hugely successful and popular Miss Afropolitan blog. And in this new book, combines Black feminist thought with popular cultural criticism and personal reflection, as well as meditations on um, South African and African religion in order to basically theorize an entire new way of imagining ourselves, our relationships to each other, and our connections to the world around us. It's a collection of essays that explores history, power, oppression, liberation. And at the center of all of this is this question of Black women, um, their relationship to autonomy and liberation, and the role of narratives to heal and empower. It offers fresh insights on key cultural issues that impacts women's lives, including power, beauty, and knowledge, and examines larger subjects like Afrofuturism, radical Black feminism, gender politics, and it provides a historical and cosmopolitan outlook that is really engaging. And um, Minna is an excellent writer, a terrific storyteller, and she touches on everything from Lauren Hill, Beyonce, Audre Lorde, Toni Morrison, all the way to Renaissance painters. It's really, uh, it's absolutely fascinating read. And I can't thank Minna enough for joining us, and I hope that you enjoy the episode. And with that, I'm very excited to welcome Minna to the New Books Network. Minna, are you there? I'm here. I'm very excited and honored to be here. Thank you so much for having yeah, me. Yeah. And where are you calling in from, by the way? I'm in London, in the United Kingdom. You are in Kingdom. London currently. Okay. Yes. Well, yeah. Well, tell us about yourself. Tell the listeners a little bit about you and maybe what brought you to write Sensuous Knowledge before we start uh, digging into what has definitely been my favorite read of the last couple months. Um, I, I had said my favorite book that I'd, that I'd read this year was Shayla Lawson's This Is Major, but I've now decided that your book and that book are tied for my favorite book that I've read this year. So, thank you so much. Um, I yeah. need to look up Shayla Lawson's book. Haven't heard of that. <gasps> Have but... you not read Shayla Lawson's This Is Major? No, I haven't. Oh. But I love that title. It sounds well, great. Like not, I'm instantly yeah, curious. What is it that is major? <laughs> on I think it's on Diana Ross, Black Girls and Being Dope. Ooh, I think is what it's called. Yeah, I have completely yeah. missed that, but I've instantly written it down. Um, so yes, thank- you should. But let's focus on you for now, <laughs> yeah, and we'll worry about sure. Sheila Lisa. Yeah, thanks yeah. for the tip, and thank you so much for um, those kind words. I'm really delighted that you enjoyed my book so much. Um, so, yeah, um, my name is Mina Salami, and I am the author of Sensuous Knowledge, which I'll be talking about more with you. Um, I'm also the founder of a blog called Ms. Afropolitan, which I have been authoring for over a decade now. And um, and the themes on that blog is in my book, Sensuous Knowledge. So it's a, it's a blog about the intersections of feminism with popular culture, with philosophy and African studies and a range of other topics. Um, I am predominantly a writer, but I also um, do some lecturing and I'm a feminist theorist by, by training um, and a researcher. And yeah, that's that's me in a nutshell. I've, um, I've recently been really interested in the connection between, um, how should I put it, between the the material and the abstract, um, I could say. So uh, between desire and and bodies, uh, knowledge and images, um, and then some of the themes that already uh, manifested in my book, Sensuous Knowledge. Um, so the, the intersection between um, the political and the aesthetic. Um, and anyway, we'll, we'll get into that. But images and symbols uh, connecting that sort of with theory and 
and matter um, is something that's a preoccupation of mine at the moment. I would say. Yeah. And that's, I think, especially for this particular uh, podcast channel, a conversation I definitely want to have before we dive into that, though. First of all, I want to say, I remember actually when um, Miss Afropolitan came out because I was starting grad school, mid-grad, it's like 2010, right? So yeah, I was was early grad school and blogging was like the new thing in higher education where we're going to just have everybody blog because that's what all the students want to do now. And and I didn't know anything about blogging. And so I remember asking around, like, what what are some good blogs that are you know, kind of like academic, but also popular and the sort of thing that the students would want to write. And everybody said, you got to read this blog. So you were actually Uh one of the early examples of blogs I ever remember teaching students when I taught them blogging. Yeah, How exciting. I really miss blogging. I've been, um, you know, since writing the book and just Generally, I think things have changed so much in terms of yeah. blogging platforms, but um, it's something that I keep intending to to return to on a more regular basis because it's um, I think it was a really powerful uh, way of creating community and just mm-hmm. sharing knowledge and conversation on a kind of uh, like almost this, uh, the spontaneity of, of blogs, I think, was something that was really powerful and actually uh, it, it's kind of a loss to public discourse, I think, that we don't have so much of that anymore. Things are far more curated these days and, uh, you know, yeah, edited. Yeah, I have sort of been bummed out by the shift to the newsletter. Like, that's the mm. new thing. Everyone has a newsletter. And I get it. And in some ways, I appreciate it. But also, I, I do miss the days of just stumbling on this treasure trove of people's often medium edited thoughts. So you got a little bit more, I think, like texture yeah. out of blogs in a way. Yes. And I think it's also, um, there's something going on where like everything is about sharing just with, you know, a select kind of exclusive community. And that definitely has its benefits, as you said, but, um, but I also think that there's something commodified about it. So, you know, even with stories on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, mm. like it's, it's all, and newsletters as well. It's all very much about you're part of my exclusive group. And of course that then leads to, um, eventually you can charge that exclusive group mm-hmm. for content. And there was something about blogs that was just, you know, it's kind of open knowledge and and just sharing with with everyone um, or anyone who happens to to see your your site. Um, so yeah, um, that's that's great to hear that my blog reached you as well. Uh, and yeah, it very much was um, uh, I mean it was such a a kind of life changing thing for me to start that blog, really, um, even though I did it as, you know, related to what we were just saying, it wasn't something that I spent a lot of time deliberating on. It, it was very spontaneous. I discovered blogs and uh, next thing I know, I'd, I'd kind of set one up. Um, mm. And, um, but, but, you know, the, the more I kind of entered the character of Mazafropolitan almost, the more, um, you know, that kind of became my my life and my lifestyle and uh, this uh, kind of continuing and deepening path into living a, a feminist life, really. Um, so it's it's something that I'm, you know, very, I'm kind of very grateful that that technology appeared. <laughs> mm. um, yeah. Well, and it's a good foray into sort of the central focus of sensuous knowledge, which is this idea of of sensuous knowledge. And what is it? And why do you advocate for it? And I don't want to say what it's not, because I don't think I want like, like the whole point is not to binarize. So I don't want to rebinarize, but certainly like what kinds of things is it trying to disrupt or displace? And uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how you conceptualize sensuous knowledge and what its relationship to feminism is and how, as you mentioned, it sort of works to at least attempt to decenter Euro-patriarchal conceptualizations of, of knowledge and value? Absolutely. Uh, so the, the, the two main concepts in the book, like the kind of conceptualizations or theorizations, are what I refer to as sensuous knowledge and then what I refer to as Euro-patriarchal knowledge. And uh, throughout the book, I kind of contrast these two. So I'll explain... Um, what each of them are to, to give listeners an idea of, of, of uh, what they mean. Um, so sensuous knowledge, firstly, which is, and most importantly, because that is the conceptualization that the book is titled after, of course, and but also the, the kind of uh, utopian black feminist view that I have almost. Um, although I would like to, I'd follow immediately by saying that it's a kind of 
I see it as being a, a pragmatic utopian vision. Um, I, I really do think that it's something that that can be practiced um, as well as theorized. Um, so sensuous knowledge is um, it's a it's an approach to epistemology that is holistic and embodied and spiritual um, in that it's it aims to interweave two fields that are typically separated, um, which we can call the uh, the political and the aesthetic, if you like. Um, there's many ways that this has been, you know, this kind of bifurcation has been referred to in the past. So, you know, it could be the mind, um, body, spirit split, um, or uh, intellect versus feeling, um, art versus science. Um, but I tend to think of it as the, the political, which includes... Um, Topics that we, topics and realms that we typically uh, see as deserving of gravitas, so um, so science and analysis and rational thinking, um, uh, technology, economy, those kinds of things, um, and then the aesthetic, which we uh, conventionally would uh, include in which we would conventionally include the arts, the body, the spiritual, um, the non-human natural world, uh, poetry, and things like that. And, um, and, and conventionally, we have a, a split between these two. And the reason for this uh, division between the political and the aesthetic is where what I refer to as Europatriarchal knowledge comes in, um, which is which is the the, the epistemic uh, realm that has sort of created this division, but importantly, it has created this division uh, not simply to uh, create taxonomies and classifications, which is part of its aim, but to create those taxonomies in order to uh, to, to control and to to position its world prism as the kind of authority that then creates hierarchies of control, uh, violence, and destruction. Um, and so sensuous knowledge, on, in, in contrast, um, is kind of premised then on, because uh, so one of the, 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 the kind of underlying um, motivation or maybe even a motto of mine in life and in my work is that you know, we cannot undo patriarchy uh, or white supremacy or any type of class oppression or any oppression at all um, with the kind of, um, by using a patriarchal logic. And so it's, you know, it's very similar to, to Audre Lorde's famous, the master's house will not dismantle the master's, the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house. Um, and so it kind of follows that if you're a patriarchal knowledge is uh, an epistemology that is uh, d dividing between the political and the aesthetic, um, then sensuous knowledge is, by contrast, an epistemology that is connecting them, uh, sy synthesizing and, and bringing them into conversation. Um, and so uh, it's, sensuous knowledge is a, an approach to, to knowledge, to ways of knowing that that brings the political and the aesthetic into conversation. And, and I start the book with uh, 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 connecting sensuous knowledge to uh, Yoruba metaphysics. Um, so I am, by, by heritage, uh, Nigerian and, and Finnish, uh, and I, I'm, I'm in Nigeria, um, my heritage is Yoruba, um, which is one of the, the ethnic groups in Nigeria. Um, and and in many ways, um, sensuous knowledge is actually a Yoruba epistemology. Even though I actually don't speak the language, but I, I, I uh, you know, it's so much of the world that I that I grew up in and that I'm still very much um, involved with, both um, kind of uh, emotionally and psychologically, as well as um, academically uh, and and in my in my profession. Um, and so 
um, in Yoruba metaphysics, the, there's a, a concept called Ogbon, um, which means knowledge, basically. Um, but it is, you know, there's a, there's a kind of mythology around Ogbon. So it is said that the, the ancient gods um, gave the people um, Ogbon, um, but they split Ogbon into two. So they had Ogbon Ori and Ogbon Inu. And Ogbon Ori uh, literally means knowledge of the head, and Ogbon Inu means literally knowledge of the gut. So you could say, uh, you know, intellectual knowledge and emotional intelligence. Mm. Um, and they split Ogbon into these two, and uh, and and the myth goes that they gave that to the people because. They knew that if you just had one type of knowledge, either Ogbon Inu or Ogbon Ori, you were only partly wise. Um, and so sensuous knowledge is, uh, a, is a kind of reflection of Ogbon. So it, it, it is constituted of uh, the political and the aesthetic, as I, as I put it earlier. Um, but also in the book, I speak a lot about, uh, about interiority. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, thinking about interiority um, as a way of knowing um, in a way that your patriarchal knowledge doesn't allow it to be. So uh, in our, um, in the way that we are all sort of conventionally educated uh, in, in systems and structures and patterns and social imaginaries that are dominated and shaped by your patriarchal knowledge, there is a kind of fear of interiority. There's, you know, it's not just that we separate um, feeling, interiority, the poetic, um, the spiritual. There's so many ways that we could we could call that, but there's actually a kind of fear of it. Um, it it's, you know, there's we kind of are allowed to acknowledge it, and we're even allowed to say that you know, perhaps it's beneficial to some extent. Um, and it's, you know, it's certainly like beautiful and maybe entertaining. Um, but it's not, uh, we don't, we don't, uh, we're afraid of it being actually kind of used in a pragmatic way as, as a methodology for transformation, for, for knowledge, for building. Um, so, so yeah, um, so sensuous knowledge is is kind of seeking to do all of these things, and um, it might be worth mentioning also that um, the, the the kind of the difference between the word sensuous and sensual, very briefly. So sensuous was um, was coined by John Milton, um, and he was looking for a word to describe poetry, his genre um, that didn't and sens he he didn't. Uh, feel that sensual was right because it, you know, it connotes the, the bodily pleasures. Um, and he was looking for a word that could um, point to the kind of integration of the mind, body, and the soul. I think that's how he himself put it. Um, and so he, he proposes um, the term sensuous. Um, and so and, and, and I, I like that sort of etymology of the word, even though it has since been used um, in very different ways. It was used by Karl Marx, I found after after writing my book, actually, that he has a, a paper about something he also refers to as sensuous knowledge. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a word that is quite malleable and fluid. I don't mean to say that it has a kind of rigid definition, but, but I, I, I think John Milton's um, coinage of it speaks to uh, that you could the other way you could say sensuous knowledge is simply uh, poetic knowledge um, and that brings me to uh, why it is a black feminist approach um, so uh, let me see where where I can start with this so um, one of the things that I argue in in the book is that um, black feminism is you know, and, and we all know this kind of black feminism is the is the, the school of thought in which uh, there are intersectional approaches. I mean, today we literally call it intersectionality, but um, throughout the history of black feminist thought, there has always been um, this insistence on the kind of multiple oppressions. 
that black women face. Um, it's been called uh, multiple jeopardy. Um, uh, one, a, a Nigerian theorist called Molara Ogundipe Leslie, she calls it uh, the mountains on my back um, in one of her books where she kind of theorizes about that. Um, you know, there's there's just been so much discussion around what we now call intersectionality. Um, and this, this points to how uh, black feminist thought is kind of the only uh, ideology. And I should say that, you know, I'm really referring to, to black feminist thought because I think there's so much conversation in our times um, about black feminism. And quite often when you say black feminism, people um, think of it as, I'm not really sure, but I think people tend to think of black feminism as like individual black feminists and what they might be con- contributing or mm. um, a kind of feminism that is thinking about race. Um, but when I say black feminism, I'm thinking about a school of thought, like the actual, uh, you know, ideas and arguments that are typical of, of black feminism um, throughout a, a, a period of time, throughout its conception to, to today, basically. Um, and so in black feminism, um, I would say that it, the thought is a reflection of an ideology which is unique in its um, thinking about multiple oppressions and the intersections of those. So, uh, you know, no other ideology really um, looks at things in this way. No other, um, I should not say ideology, rather, but rather a kind of... Um, resistance movement, resistance ideology, perhaps more specifically. Um, so feminism has obviously like centered on on patriarchy. So like, you know, the kind of mainstream popular feminism centers on, on patriarchy. Um, Marxism centered on class structures. Black liberation has centered on race. Um, mm. So black feminism as an ideology is unique in actually you know, looking at all of these different structures of oppression. Um, and But in addition to that, black feminism, and not only in addition, but also consequently, consequently um, black feminism uh, has always been an ideology in which the poetic um, and the more than human world uh, are of central relevance. Um, so by nature of not being uh, allowed to enter spaces um, where knowledge is formed, uh, you know, education, leadership, the, the cultural world, um, black women have had to kind of invent or, or carve out um, pockets of space in which they can um, create language and knowledge and that has often been in the poetic realm um so sensuous knowledge is even though it's a you know it's 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 my kind of unique take and you know it's it's certainly not something that uh, every black feminist would uh ne- would not necessarily adopt that same approach but it is you know in in, in that in in these ways that i've just described uh the kind of intersectional um, poetic and the uh, and and in considering um, the natural world, sensuous knowledge um, you know fits into that compendium of of resistance and ideological thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a good point. I hadn't thought about this, but when you right, I even think about when I teach, and I and I teach at a predominantly white institution, so it's not like I'm drawing from a, a wealth of options. But when you say like what what is black feminist thought people will name individual mm. black feminists who have thoughts not a body of thought i mean and obviously that's not true it's just i, I think that is right i think that's the perception you might get like an audre lord or a tony morrison but you don't really get a strong collective theory of a entire epistemology as you say yeah and that really um bothers me if a, a mm. lot, you know. It's um, I think it's so indicative of how um, of how marginalized Black women actually are, and how unseriously, you know, our uh, kind of body of work as Black feminists is is taken, and sometimes even, you know, by by Black women ourselves. Like there's, um, I think, 
you know, when you think about um, in our times, you know, there's a lot of black feminism that you could argue um, is aligned with neoliberal um, perspectives um, and worldviews. Um, And, and, you know, that's, that's okay because black feminist thought can have, uh, there can be like intra, intra ideological conversations, if you like. But I think, you know, for instance, if we think about somebody like Beyonce, um, she's such an easy example. And I feel like I'm being a bit lazy by using her, but I will nevertheless, because it kind of makes it, it makes it easier to, to explain. We'll call, it access- we'll call it accessible. <laughs> it's accessible. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she's somebody who who's probably like, you know, she's, I mean, she's definitely uh, aligned in many ways with the kind of neoliberal uh, spirit of our times um, and capitalism and things like that. But she also in many ways is um, aligned with, you know, the kind of traditional uh, black feminist school of thought. Mm. Um, but it's until we kind of, are able to see that there is a trajectory and a compendium of black feminist thought. Uh, a lot of the conversations around whether or not Beyonce is contributing progressively to feminism or not, and that kind of discussion, um, it, it just isn't very productive or it isn't as productive as it could be. Um, because I think if we look at like what black feminist thought traditionally is, which is again, not to say that it can't be something else. There's always, you know, people can dispute that. But what it traditionally has represented is, you know, is is this, uh, especially this intersection between gender, race, and class, and also um, very importantly, anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism. Uh, black feminism has really been a kind of uh, repository for, uh, and I, I mean that in not in a negative sense, is like a, a place where we dump, <laughs> you know, every single oppression, but. Uh, actually something that has really enriched what makes it such a rich space is that it has considered all of these things combined. And so um, when we think of it that way, then, you know, and and we then look at the the work and the art of somebody like Beyonce, um, I think it just opens up a space for, you know, far more complex conversations than if we just think of black feminism as individuals. Well, and I think Beyonce is a good example for a couple of reasons. And obviously, which is interesting because Beyonce is sort of like, like she's like your grab example throughout the book. I think you mentioned her three or four times, even though she doesn't get any sustained treatment, which I actually appreciated because I've read a lot of black feminist thought that uses a lot of Beyonce. And it was nice to see you using so many examples, some of which I was familiar with, but I was seeing in new ways like Lauren Hill and some of which I was not familiar with, um, like the Singularity University example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this case, I think one of the things that Beyonce helps to illustrate that you bring up throughout the book is that you really want to center – I don't – I'm I'm probably going to say this like wrong, but you really want to center joy as part of the conversation about – like like joy has to be a huge part of black feminist thought and what it means to have sensuous knowledge because so often, right, like black women are thought of as just like oppressed. And so everything's lack and everything's – gloom. And so it's not that those things aren't there. And obviously there are some parts of this book that, I mean, really almost took my breath away. They were so upsetting and many of them were very personal to you, but there was also a lot of, of joy and um, like stickiness is a word that Shayla Lawson uses. And I thought about it as I was reading the book, that there are just these interesting moments of complex stickiness that are at once joyful and interesting, but also, I mean, clearly like there was a lot of suffering happening. Uh, and so Beyonce is good because, I mean, I think one thing she does well is that's always all on the forefront and you never, and you, she doesn't really trade one for the other. She brings it all into the music or the music video or the interview or the performance. Yeah, I love that. And I love this um, phrase, complex stickiness. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. I think she, I, I mean, I've, I've written a, a few times about Beyonce on my blog and my I've kind of swayed between writing, you know, like I had a blog post that was in, called In Praise of Beyonce, and then I've been more critical about her as well, probably on social media rather than on my blog. Um, but in the book, I yeah, I think I wanted to, like wherever I do mention her, it's, you know, it's reflecting of, uh, like, of her complexity, I guess, and of the complexity of us all, therefore. Like, she's, you know, she's, she's definitely... Um, there's a there's things about the 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 kind of the conversation that she puts out into uh, civic space uh, through her art, um, and 
the the, the way that that kind of clashes um, with again with kind of conventional black feminist thought. Um, but um, yeah, uh, joy is um, something that she she certainly foregrounds in her work, which I appreciate a lot. And uh, and yes, as you said, uh, absolutely right. It's it's uh, joy is really central um, to sensuous knowledge. Um, it's I guess it's um, it's there's been a lot of conversation about um, you know black sort of hashtag black joy um, mm. and uh, which I think is is mainly positive but one of the things that can go lost and that is um, essential to me in in the book is that it is a kind of political joy um, I, I think I describe it as a joy that is kind of a mix uh, political joy is a kind of mix of, of rage and, and hope. I think I say, um, so it's, it's some, it's the feeling of it is almost as if you'd like survived a near death experience. Um, and you're then like, uh, committed to, to living in a way that is, um, joyous insofar that it is it is intentional almost it is it is meaningful um it, it or it is striving to be um intentional and meaningful these this is of course a process um for me as it is for for most of us um but it is i mean maybe it, i think it also has a lot to do with um desire and uh, the mm-hmm. kind of the the gap between um our desires um, uh, in in patriarchal society and like how they how unfulfilled they often are. Um, I, I tend to think that we're all um, driven by at least three desires. Um, one is the kind of the desire to um, to have meaningful connections with with others um so a kind of desire for love um whether it's romantic or platonic or erotic um and then there's a desire that we all typically feel which is a desire for social progress and uh subsequently for for change social change toward that progress even if we all kind of envision progress differently um, and then the, the, the third desire that I think um, people have is the, the thirst for knowledge. Um, so certainly these three desires feel like, you know, they, they're kind of uh, load stars in my life. And, um, and I think they, I would say that they also um, are load stars for the kind of obstacles uh, that I face in my life that are both you know whether they are personal or political obstacles. Um, the, the, it is the political obstacles that we uh, call institutionalized oppression, um, and uh, and you know the the kind of uh, the more that we we are striving uh, toward fulfilling these desires, we simultaneously become more aware of the obstacles for them, um, as well as the the opportunities. But that kind of triangular. Um, ecology of, of, of desire and uh, obstacle is is the space in which I think um, political joy uh, emerges, uh, you know, because when you do sort of, um, uh, if you transcend an obstacle, or even if you just are part of a community, because, you know, the, the reality is that uh, if you look back at Black liberation, uh, class struggle, feminist movements, you know, they are not uh, obstacles that are transcended in, in a lifetime. This has been going on for centuries. Right. But but just being, um, just seeing, you know, small steps or, or in an individual life, it can be a big change that manifests. Um, and that is, um, that, that, that can be a, a space of political joy. Um, and it's also a space which, you know, it's such a kind of, uh, a raison d'etre for writing and thinking uh, about sensuous knowledge in the way that I do, because in order to um, to to move 
beyond, um, you know, the here, this this kind of oppressive here, in which we have to to exist. Um, there is a we have to we have to move beyond um, into different dimensions and imaginaries in a in a whole way. And so, if we are trying to uh, to move beyond with Europatriarchal knowledge, we create yet an obstacle. Um, so sensuous knowledge is, is an attempt to provide uh, a tool, uh, one tool in, in, you know, in the kind of conceptual, um, uh, what's the word I'm, I'm thinking of? I, had a, I have a good word on the tip of my tongue, but can't remember it. But a kind of the, the, the lexicon of, of uh, feminist. Yeah, I was going to say arsenal, but then I was like, no, that's military. Let's not go there. But I, like your, like your tool, your toolkit, right? I know what you're yeah. saying, though. Your, your resources. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had something similar. I think it was also like had a military connotation. I was yeah, like, yeah. yeah, I know. I keep trying one. to back down from those, but they're, I, they're, they're everywhere. I hadn't realized it till I started trying not to use them anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes, it's it's one one lexical tool with which to, um, and not just lexical, actually, one uh, kind of it's also um it's it's more uh active i think than than just being a, a linguistic one um with which to to um really uh like explore that space uh that that keeps preventing us from progress yeah well they're kind of like i don't know like attitudinal because i know what you mean they are lexical in the sense that they are like they're words that live in language, but they're concept metaphors that are meant to, and I, and I found myself thinking about this as I read through the book, they're trying to like push on how you think the world works or what you think is possible. So to me, it felt like, yeah, they, it was words doing it, but it was connecting with my psyche and sort of this like attitudinal shift or this outlook shift. So I know what you mean there. It is more, the sensuous knowledge is a lot more active than just a lexicon, even though it is also a lexicon. I, I see where right. you're, what you're trying to get at there. Yeah, and I really appreciate what you just said. I, I, I remember um, actually once, I think it was um, Linda Gregg, the poet, but I mm. might be wrong. I think she was the one who said um, she defined, um, or she was she was uh, encouraging the attitude of poetry. Um, and I just really loved that. And I think mm-hmm. uh, I thought this is, what sensuous knowledge also is, is is doing among other things but it's like it's yeah it's as so attitudinal um i really i really like that it's um it's definitely um and and i've also come across the the term uh psychoactive <laughs> which is a mm, uh, psychoactive so is good yeah yeah um so it's it's really trying to um my book wants to to shift um something in the interiority of the reader um in in how they perceive the world without saying that this is how you should perceive it, but, you know, just to kind of query and challenge um, the, the ways that we are uh, asked to think, um, not only by your patriarchal knowledge, but I think, um, you know, in our, in these days, there's, there's just so many um, manifestations of your patriarchal knowledge, you know, like surveillance, capitalism, um, uh, kind of uh, a lot of social media activism, which which borrows from this um, uh, like a kind of robotic, uh, the the machine like way of communicating that that is devoid of of feeling and dialogue uh, that that patriarchal knowledge has has championed. Yeah. And you give so many different, I don't want to call them examples necessarily because each one sort of does something different with the concept, but you give different manifestations or uh, sort of like concretizations of sensuous knowledge. And they range from rivers as a reconceptualization of of how you conceive of power under a sensuous knowledge framework to people like Lauren Hill. So just because for the sake of time, is there one in particular that you really think, even the color indigo, which was it was a beautiful meditation on just what this one color can do to disrupt these like Western logics of girls are pink and boys, you know, like indigo is this thir- almost third term. Um, do you have one in particular that you really resonate with or that you think is a good illustration for someone who hasn't read the book and wants to, to grasp a little more about sensuous knowledge? Yeah, I think I'll go with um, 
Exusions, um, yeah. which was um, because I've I've written um, some follow up essays. I'm I'm still writing. It's a series um, uh, where I'm developing exusions on a platform called Perspectiva. Um, so you know, if I speak about it and somebody wants to to sort of read more than what is in the book um, that exists, so exusions is um, uh, is is a concept that I. I coin in my chapter about power and sensuous knowledge. Um, it comes from the ancient Greek word exousia, which means power. Um, and it is based on conversations that I had with rivers, um, which, uh, you know, sounds a little bit out there. Um, but I, um, I, I felt a really strong need to, to, to literally sort of um, try to have a conversation with rivers. Um, and so um, I would, you know, go to rivers or just sort of um, like, like spend days, if not weeks, uh, just watching videos of, of rivers and um, like sometimes, you know, slowing them down and pausing and just trying to talk. Um, and, this for me was, um, it was somehow obsessive. And I think it had to do partly with that. I was, um, I was grieving. Um, I was, uh, I was, um, exploring sensuous knowledge. Um, there was, you know, a lot of sort of internal inner, um, motivations for that, that I can't even yet fully explain. But, um, what emerged, um, was that, Rivers spoke to me about power um, and power, the exploration of power um, has been something that has preoccupied me for, uh, you know, over a decade. I did my master's thesis was about power um, and just really the sense of what I was saying earlier that like, you know, patriarchal logic cannot um, help us to envision new worlds and so much about uh, like in the work that I've done traveling around the world doing um, advocacy work and connecting with, you know, amazing uh, grassroots organizations and activists and artists around the world. Um, I just had this, um, I've had this kind of nagging sense that um, so much of why we are not making as much progress as, as we want to, even though we are making a lot of progress has to do with that. We still understand power um, the same power structures that we're trying to erode, we still understand them. We still understand our own movements with that same, uh, not just language, as you pointed to earlier, it's not just lexical, but uh, with this, the same kind of images in our psyches, um, the symbolisms of power as something that is synonymous with with authority, with violence, with coercion. Um, and and so Rivers um, it started to uh, provide me with, new images of power um, and uh, and from that I kind of um, so what I saw was the way that uh, uh, you know when a river meets an obstacle it will move its way uh, above or under or around or through the obstacle um, until it uh, you know reaches its its destination which is the ocean and along this way, there's um, there's all these tributaries and streams that that join it, um, and so the the language that emerged was something that I called branching, um, which you know the, the rivers branches, which are these uh, tributaries and streams, etc. Um, and the way in which you know it's kind of like the chicken or egg scenario where you can't really tell if uh, the, the the branches are what are feeding the river, if the river is feeding the branches, but nevertheless, everything is just moving toward this, this kind of final destination. Um, and so, yeah, so I, um, I then developed that. And in the chapter, I, I, I look particularly at the, the river Yangtze, um, the, the Thames river and the Niger river. And I, I go on this journey um, on some of the, the kind of history and, the, the mythology and the the political socio political um, events that have occurred along these three rivers um, and just uh, explore power through this through this language that I'm exploring um, 
Oh, I said exploring there twice, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, um, exusions is is uh, is an example of sensuous knowledge um, as it manifests when thinking about universal concepts like power. Well, and I especially appreciated this example because one of the things I I do sort of as a living and as a hobby is just point out cliches. It's like my favorite thing to do ever. So I love when people tear apart a cliche that I think is particularly destructive. And one of the things that you'll I don't know if you noticed this, but I hear it a lot, or I'll see it in motivational books or sports psychology, things like that, about uh, Bruce Lee and this quote about being like a river and about flowing and not letting things get in your way. And I was always like, I mean, I guess. I, I don't know who can live like this. And also, have you met a river? Because <laughs> I like rivers do all kinds of stuff and they also often are very aggressive. And yeah, some, and sometimes they're they're dried up because of capitalist exploitation. And it's just like it, the, the quote has just See, people keep recirculating it. And I'm like, I'm glad it worked for Bruce Lee, but it's not good. It just as motivational fodder, it's really empty and unprivileged and just kind of like out of touch with the reality of most people and nature and what's happening in the in the global climate crisis. And so this chapter was really awesome for the way that it reconceptualized the relationship between river and power and privilege in a lot of ways that I thought was just so much more rich in understanding then kind of how rivers get exploited as metaphors, I think, for mundane ways of thinking about power flows. Thank you. I haven't heard that quote, but I can, I instantly can kind of glean um, how it could easily become a cliche. Uh, And yeah, I think I, you know, I, I mean, I've obviously encountered uh, many other uh, sort of cliched metaphors about rivers, and they they so easily lend themselves to the poetic. And I and I use that too. But I also, um, I mean, I was mindful for one of like not wanting to uh, anthropomorphize rivers too much, um, uh, mm, yep. mm-hmm. you know. But also to afford um, or just kind of show that rivers are are complex. To to, I mean, saying afford them complexities instantly. Doing what I said I don't want to do, which is anthropomorphizing. Um, <laughs> well, we do what we can, you know. We yeah, do the best we can. Uh, yeah, it's so tricky. But, you know, just um, kind of, I think seeing that, yeah, rivers are not just like this beautiful poetic imagery. They also are responsible for, um, uh, you know, in because of uh, capitalist exploitation and climate change and things like that. But they even prior to, to that, they, you know, they're also... Um, can be responsible for the deaths of millions of people throughout the course of human history. And so it's just, um, I guess what really lies at the root of it is um, just expanding um, language and symbols and being able to um, be part of an, an ecology in the way that Europatriarchal knowledge limits us and, you know, creates again, these kind of robotic hierarchies between humans and and uh, other uh, parts of nature, because of course, we're very much part of nature, um, or we are nature. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the beginnings of, of a lifelong um, attempt and relationship for me um, to, to really just be in communication with, with the ecology in which I exist. Yeah, you had this great quote. I don't know if it's a quote, but it's a it's a little anecdote in the book about a painter, and I can't remember their name, but I think they were like a European white white male painter who says that a painter should not paint like a nature scene if they cannot imagine themselves as part of the scene, and if they cannot imagine themselves as part of the scene, then maybe they shouldn't be painting. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought that was so illustrative of this argument. I mean, not not to not to put your words in somebody else's words. I'm just bringing up a, 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 an illustration that you also brought up as a another kind of touchstone for people listening who want maybe a little bit more grounding on some of these concepts. Uh, I can't actually think of which quote was, that is. It was a painting of they were on a picnic and they were looking out over uh, a valley and the, the like. There'd even been a protest move, movement because the valley was gonna had erosion and nobody was going to take care of it, but because of its role in art and history, the people got together and they protected the valley and the oh. painting is of these two people on a picnic, him and his, his, his woman, I think his wife or something. 
Yeah. Oh, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, I know. I'm, uh, I'm bad with names. You, well, you, you have such a wealth because... of knowledge in this book, and I couldn't hold on to a third of it in my memory. <laughs> I mean, even I can't clearly, but it's called Friedrich something. Uh, yes, like, it's, it's a Friedrich. Yes, that's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, actually, I think what I'm saying about him is, a, is, is, is that he, because he was uh, part of the Romantic movement, um, so one of the things that um, I, I point out in the book is that your patriarchal knowledge is, uh, you know, I, I, I very intentionally am calling it knowledge rather than just say you're a patriarchy because um, it's looking precisely at the the epistemic uh, contribution of your patriarchal knowledge. Um, and I distinguish that kind of from Europe patriarchal structures say um because your patriarchal structures have never like contributed with anything um progressive uh you know it's all pretty destructive in terms of the systems and the structures of capitalism of patriarchy all of that um but your patriarchal knowledge is not all negative actually necessarily so your patriarchal knowledge um has uh, you know this this obsession with the kind of mechanic and the robotic and um, uh, classification and things like that has uh, you know led to many scientific breakthroughs um, to the invention of modern universities and encyclopedias and you know it's kind of the enlightenment um, is part of it as well um, but in and so um, one of the uh, the, the kind of branches of Europatriarchal knowledge that is has been the kind of internal critique of it is the Romantic movement and um, Friedrich this this painter um, was was part of that movement um, you know they were predominantly men who were calling for a more like emotional approach uh, to knowledge so, so I, I basically say in the book that sensuous knowledge is you know it's it's kind of uh, has similarities with the, the romantics um but at the same time that you know they were so biased uh and and blind to their own kind of uh racism and classism and uh, sexism so it you know it kind of makes a lot of their thinking uh untrue and and um but but yes that there's also you know there's there's there can be value that comes out of it and and part of sensuous knowledge and it being such a a kind of the you know the, a, a big motivation for it being such a a hybrid is precisely so that we can take what is useful you know it's not a a, out of out out of knowledge that exists whether it is uh indigenous or europatriarchal or whichever um contribution to knowledge that has been made uh throughout the course of 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 history by humans and non-humans um can be utilized if it is useful for getting us to that sort of next higher dimension that we need to to move toward um it's just that for the most part your patriarchal knowledge doesn't do that but we have because it's uh so centered on on creating domination and hierarchy but you know in order to to really both critique it and to uh hopefully eventually uh reduce its dominance in the world we have to really understand it understand what motivates it um, but also afford it a kind of uh you know sometimes a, a, a usefulness and a value yeah um and, I've, and 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 it's a generous i mean i would say it's a generous book on that front which is i know is always a hard thing for i, I interview so many authors on this podcast and they all have such different approaches and some some choose to be generous and you i thought reflected nicely throughout the book on why that might be an option for you, but you could understand why it might not be an option for other people. Like that um, that woman who approached you at you were speaking at a conference, I believe, and she was a, a black British woman, and she said, I've, "I'm done having these conversations with white people." When you had said that, and, and it's because of your different histories and positions and where you grew up, because you didn't grow up in Britain. And um, I, 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 yeah, it was it was a very generous approach, and I maybe I thought I liked it because it, it didn't. It didn't take away from the book in terms of it didn't feel like you were trying to be artificially inclusive just for the sake of like writing a book that, you know, wouldn't ruffle any feathers. It just felt fair. It felt fair and, you know, you were willing to 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 give credit where credit was due and also to refuse to give credit in many other places. Like I thought the Singularity inter- a University example was really important because you go to this sort of 
um, this this just I mean this the most some of the most advanced thinkers in the world go to this singularity university to study and to to lecture and to teach and you show up and you're talking to these people who have all the potential to kind of bring your this sensuous knowledge into being right they have the money and the resources and and here they are talking about how they're just going to like get theirs and make sure that they live until they're 150 without any thought of how impossible that is for 99%. And it's just it's a really testament to the to the way you traverse the the good and the bad throughout the book and acknowledge that we have potential to do these things. It's just right these structures so rarely produce the outcome that would align with with black feminist values. That's not to say that they never do it. Thank you so much, Lee. Thanks for like such a, a close reading of the book and understanding um, some of its intentions. Um, it, yeah, absolutely. I think it, I mean it goes back to to where I started and saying that it has uh, it's it, it's a book that I would uh, in some ways call a pragmatic utopia um, or pragmatic mm. utopian vision. Um, and you know, I think that um, part of the, the the pragmatic part is that, you know, we are all quite um, invested in what I'm referring to as Europatriarchal knowledge. Um, there's, uh, I mean, you know, it's it's very difficult to not be part of that that way of thinking, to not, to, it's, you know, it's, it, the understanding of it is the very sort of beginning of the journey to undo it. Um, and I mm. think so often when um, in a lot of, uh, you know, radical thought, um, the vilification, the sort of blanket condemnation and vilification um, makes it difficult to really understand and grapple and maybe see how we are complicit. Um, and therefore, it doesn't always convince me that we can undo it because it just becomes this like bogeyman. It's, you know, it's, it's almost very uh, religious. It's like God and Satan. And like, there's a lot of that kind of uh, approach um, in the zeitgeist. And for me, like a pragmatic utopia has to, it's not about, um, as you said, like I'm not uh, interested in, in kind of assuaging or, you know, including for the sake of including, I'm, I'm just deeply, um, sort of aware of my own realities and 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 the the, the larger goals that uh, that I would really uh, you know wish in terms of going back to desire and the kind of the social progress that that I want and I think you know taking a pragmatic approach to that is what seems the kind of most um, realistic to me um, and so essentialist knowledge is very much um, uh, centered around uh, that kind of thought. Well, I so appreciate the work. I appreciate the energy it must have taken to write so accessibly through such dense ideas, the research, uh, even the audiobook narrator that you, I assume, had a hand in selecting was fabulous. Yeah. I first, first I read the book and then I wanted to listen to it again and I was traveling, so I got the audiobook. And I will say it's just as pleasant in both formats, which is a hard oh. nut to crack. Robin Miles. Yeah. So, so for anyone listening, I cannot work. recommend the book enough. Yep. Um, you can, if, if you're listening right now on your phone or on your web or on your desktop, go ahead and just open up the show notes and you'll see a link to bookshop.org and to the HarperCollins website where you can head over and get a copy of the book. And I always like to remind people that this is the kind of book we really want everyone reading, uh, especially uh, women of color, especially young women of color. And the, with, with resources being what they are, they're not getting into libraries the way that they did. So if you aren't inclined to get a copy of your, uh, for yourself, don't hesitate to head into a library and donate a copy. They especially appreciate hard copies. Or you can put in a request to have them purchase one, although that um, might not be in, in some budgets. But donating to libraries books like this is a, a really nice thing that you can do right now and to uh, reward writers like Minna for their work. And with that, Minna, is there anything you want to say to the people and let us know what you're up to right now or new projects? Or are you just recovering and, and, and basking in the in the rewards of a job well done. <laughs> um, thank you very much um, to everybody who's listened and made it to the end, if, if you have made it to the end. Um, <laughs> and, you know, thank you to, to Yuli. It's been such an honor to be on your wonderful show. Um, and yeah, I'm just, um, uh, I'm, I'm kind of gearing up for a, a lot of um, 
speaking again, speaking about my book. So it's been locked down here in London as it has uh, for you as well, no doubt. Um, mm. So I haven't really, since the book came out, I've, I've you know, I haven't been able to do in-person events and I've got quite a few of those coming up. So, um, so I'm really excited about, about that for the, for the autumn. Well, terrific. And I assume you have a website where you'll, where you post uh, public speaking engagements. Is that something that, that people could look up if they wanted to see you talk or are these going to be pretty much things that are closed to the public? Uh, no, they're mostly open to the public. Um, I haven't been updating the, the page where I normally would um, share where upcoming events. So if anybody would would love to um, join one of them, please get in touch with me. Um, there's a contact form on my website or you can just Great. holler at me on Instagram or something. Um, yeah. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, everyone, uh, for tuning in and listening. Please definitely check out a copy of Sensuous Knowledge. And Minna, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you so much. 